Good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's uh, public lecture sponsored by the Migration Studies Unit in Stickard. The lecture is entitled, as you can see there, of course, The Age of Mobility, Can Migration Work for All? This is a very complex, politically sensitive, and very pressing issue, and in my judgment, there are few people better to address it than Peter Sutherland. Peter Sutherland is the United Nations Special Representative for Migration, and he's here in this capacity tonight. He is also, he has a few other day jobs, and among those, he's Chairman of Goldman Sachs International, Chairman of BP, and if that's not enough, of course, he's Chairman of the LSE Court of Governors, and we thank him very much for his continued and lengthy service to the LSE. He has a long and distinguished career spanning both the public and private sectors, I think it's important to note that, within the UK and the wider international arena. And he's been a passionate advocate, as I've just been uh, reminded, although I didn't really need reminding it, of European integration for a very long time. He trained as a barrister, was appointed Attorney General of Ireland, has served as Commissioner of the EC with responsibility for competition policy, worked as Director General of the GATT, was the first Director General of the WTO, and he, among other things, he's Honorary Ambassador for the UN Industrial Development Organization. All this and much more. He was awarded an honorary knighthood in 2004, and it is, by any account, a very distinguished career indeed. Tonight, he'll focus on a long-standing interest, migration, and he'll be happy to take questions on this topic, and I would like to stress as chair only on this topic tonight. Please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. Well, let me, let me start by saying, after that generous introduction by David, that his reference to Europe and what has been, for me, a guiding passion for much of my life, namely European integration, isn't unrelated to the topic which I propose to address tonight. Because coming from a country which has had more than its fair share of trauma over recent decades, arising from issues of identity and nationalism, it's always seemed to me that the issue of nationalism national identity and values <coughs> is a crucial element of any debate on the world in which we now live. And when I received a call in 2005 from Kofi Annan, a man who's a friend and I great, one whom I greatly admire, he made the point to me in the context of something which I'll be describing shortly, namely my role in, in the UN system that the process of globalization has been focused significantly on areas of commerce, broadly defined, whether in trade of goods or services, and much less on the crucial issue of people, the relationship between peoples, and the issue of movement of people. I initially said to him that I didn't really feel, no more than I feel tonight, a particular competence or indeed any profound knowledge on the subject. But I did accept that that linkage was very definitely there. 
And recently, I was doing some reading on the origins of the European Union, which is a unique and, in my view, noble experiment in bringing peoples together, long separated by years of conflict in a part of the world that for so many years was a cockpit of conflict. And when you go back to the original thinking of those who were concerned in the late 40s and early 50s, not merely with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, people like Jacques Maritain, who was a thinker who influenced uh, Robert Schuman, who was probably the most instrumental of all in launching European integration. Their bete noire was nationalism. And nationalism, for me, has always been rooted in an innate belief in superiority of one person over another. And you find it here, as you find it in every society, in the stereotypes of other people. The stereotypes affixed to nationality, sometimes affixed to religion. And to me, it is not merely corrosive, but deeply dangerous for society. And that really is what motivates the interest that I have in the subject which I want to address you on tonight. It's tempting to say that the financial and now the economic crisis which we are facing, which is unprecedented in any of our lifetimes, has changed everything, and in a way it has. But, and indeed no area of public policy is going to be immune to its effects. Public finances have suffered very significant blows. Tax revenues will fall, as they are falling now, as fast as social welfare costs are rising. Budget knives have been uncheated, and the job market is in turmoil. Unemployment levels can be expected to increase. They're expected in many parts of the OECD to double, and they're already having an evident effect in places such as China. And a disruption like this can cause a paralysis in public policy, especially in areas as complex as migration. If we don't know what the state of our labor markets might be in six months, let alone in six years, how is it possible to establish a rational and reasonable immigration policy? So in a somewhat contrarian spirit, what I hope to do this evening is to try to overcome some of this paralysis, which I suspect is going to overtake our thinking in this area, by focusing on some constants in the migration-related policy issues area. Issues that I think demand our attention and our investment, regardless of what may transpire in the economy during the next year or two. I begin by highlighting a few of the more relevant and interesting trends related to migration that are defining this new age of mobility in which we live. And then I'd like to elaborate on two areas of policy that I believe should absorb our attention in the coming months and years. The first of these is the issue of migration and development and the linkage between the two. The marriage of these two policy realms is one of the most promising advances that are being made. The second is integration, because as we endure a harsh recession, the cohesion of our societies will face new challenges. 
And those on the margins, especially immigrants, I believe are likely to be subject to greater discrimination. I will argue that we need to use this opportunity to embrace immigrants, not by forcing a one-sided assimilation on them, by, but by meeting them halfway and by reshaping our institutions so that they address the needs of our diverse uh, new century societies. It's tempting to share with you the projections of some of the world's best demographers on what we might expect with respect to population levels and migration flows in the coming generation or two. Will Europe's uh, native-born continue to shrink? What will happen to Africa? And I will spend a few moments on those trends, but I must preface them with a caveat. Demographic projections can be as harmful as they are helpful. This is because they can be spectacularly wrong. Even in the best, most stable of times, they're unreliable. When a disruption that is as enormous as the current crisis intervene, they can be risable. Let me give you one example. In 1955, the United Kingdom projected that its population in 1993, nearly 40 years into the future, would be 53 million. The actual figure was 5 million more. The forecasters had it so wrong because they had not anticipated the baby boom of the 60s. So that their 1965 projection was completely inaccurate. The assumption was made that by 2000 there would be a UK population of 75 million, but birth rates fell and the 2000 population was 59 million. If we were to focus on only one set of statistics, in fact, it might make sense to dwell on birth rates. In much of the West today, we have experienced a full generation of fertility rates below the population replacement rate of about 2.1 children per woman. <coughs> the rates in several countries in southern and eastern Europe have dipped to nearly half the replacement rate and those countries will see their populations shrink by as much as a quarter by 2050. Because of a phenomenon known as demographic momentum, there is nothing that can be done to stop this slide, short of migration. Overall, in the EU, the European Commission is now estimating that the working age population will start to shrink by 2013. By 2050, even assuming an influx of 50 million new immigrants between now and then, there will be 40 million fewer people in the EU workforce. In that same period, life expectancy is set to rise by five years. The impact on our social welfare systems will be massive, with the dependency ratio cut in half from four workers for every retiree today to just two workers by 2050. If you were, let's say, in Germany and wanted to maintain the current social welfare structure and dependency ratio, you would likely have to welcome three million new immigrants every year between now and 2050. It's worth noting that the decline in birth rates is not unique to the West. 
In South Korea, the fertility rate, race, rate is 1.1 and Japan 1.3. And in Shanghai, it has fallen below 1, touching 0 0.9. It appears that young people throughout the world are going on strike. But that issue is one perhaps that one could discuss on another occasion, and certainly I'm not going to discuss it. Even assuming Western countries do their best to boost the working population through non-migration measures, increasing the workforce participation rates, especially of, of women and minorities, raising the retirement age, promoting larger families, migration will be a major part of any policy mix that is realistic in regard to the future. Between now and 2020, the European Commission figures that 100 million new job openings will occur in the EU, 80 million of which will be positions created by the retirement of baby boomers. The number of new jobs in manufacturing will be very small. The vast majority of the positions will be either at the high or low end of the skill spectrum. While Europe is shrinking, Africa, on the other hand, is growing. No doubt you know about the youth bulge and the expectations of many demographers that Africa's population could, re could reach 2 billion by 2050. But allow me to highlight a less well-known pro projection. If education systems in sub-Saharan Africa produce students at the global trend level, by 2050 there will be 500 million working age sub-Saharan Africans with a secondary or higher educational level. Today there are fewer than 100 million. It's worth considering where these well-educated individuals will look for work. By contrast, in Europe today there are 350 million working age individuals a number that will fall below 300 million in the next 40 years. This is a fantastically divided demographic world with fantastic challenges that people aren't waking up to. Let me focus on another trend that is of particular relevance and that's the migration of students. There's a fierce battle to attract students from around the world. This is in part because education is an industry, a massive one, and it is on a constant hunt for clients. But students also are the preeminent means for countries to import the skilled workers of the future. Educational systems are used either deliberately or as an unintended byproduct as a means to attract migrants believed to be necessary. <coughs> Over 50% of the high-skilled immigrants in Australia, for an example, have come through this student pathway. The competition to educate our future engineers, doctors, IT workers, and of course economists and political scientists is intensifying. Japan has set a goal of attracting one million new students. Traditional source countries also are getting aggressively into the mix. China is investing $4 billion annually in its research universities and is set to become the number two destination in the next decade. 
One adverse effect of this competition is that some universities are dumbing down their courses and lowering their standards to attract more students. Paradoxically, while we compete vigorously to endow students with skills, we're astonishingly, astonishingly inept at employing the skills that immigrants bring with them. <coughs> A just-released study in the United States showed that 22% of high-skilled immigrants work in low-skilled jobs, while another 22% toil in semi-skilled jobs. This is deeply troubling. And again, it has a racial undertone in terms of why that should be the case. One other trend worthy of note, in the United States there's been a dramatic slowdown over the past year in illegal arrivals of immigrants, which are down by half. That ends the horror part of what I wanted to say to you. It's perhaps not a coincidence that just yesterday another gathering nearly as august, almost as important obviously as this one, took place in Paris. It was hosted by France as the EU presidency. It was the second Euro-African ministerial conference on migration and development and it brought together leaders from nearly 60 countries and I attended it. It's worth dwelling for a moment on the, on the, on the title, a ministerial meeting on migration and development. I would argue that yesterday's summit never would have taken place if it had only been about migration. It's the marriage of migration and development that has opened up the possibility for civilized discourse and fruitful cooperation amongst countries of North and South. And as I'll recount in a moment, it's at this intersection that I have been involved. Of course, migration has always been at the heart of the development narrative. Money sent home by workers has built houses, churches, hospitals, underwritten education, financed revolutions, and paid for basic daily expenses since ancient times. My own country, which is a country of emigration, survived as a result of emigrants' remittances. And even when I was in university in the 60s, the figures that were given as an input to the Irish economy were by far the most striking figures of all in terms of positive involvement. But there are countless examples near and far of, of how pivotal migrants have been in the political, economic and social development of our nations. For instance, when Greece was fighting for its independence way back in 1821, that struggle was financed by loans arranged by the Greek diaspora here in London who had access to the British banking system. It was fomented by Greek-owned newspapers which were in Vienna and it was fought by a diaspora of Greeks from countries throughout Europe. And nearly two centuries after its independence, remittances were the leading source of foreign earnings in Greece as they are to this day. And while the resources of migrants have always been central to the development narrative, migration did not become a focus of development policy making until very recently. But if you go to the Philippines and made a conference there in the last two months on this issue, you will see that a key plank of the Philippine economic policy is related to the deliberate 
development of a policy of having migrants and using the resources that migrants uh, send back to the Philippines. It's being done in as humane a way as it can be done, but arises from the difficulties in the Philippine economy. The European Union has done quite a lot uh, to try to develop new thinking in recent times on this issue of migration and development. The developing world, meanwhile, has moved beyond a discourse that too often was distorted by notions of brain drain and other grievances, and many of these are legitimate, but they've gained a keener understanding of how its migrants aboard, abroad could be of benefit to them and how connecting those migrants abroad with their home country is of vital importance in the development of the home country. Nearly half of today's international migrants have gone from one country in the south to another country in the south. And the rush of workers from the Philippines and Southeast Asia to the Gulf states, for an example, being one prime example of such south-south flows, indicates that this is not just a north-south phenomenon. Poland, meanwhile, has spent the, last, the past year seeking workers from China, India, and Vietnam, whilst we here have been talking of Polish plumbers. For all these reasons, this is a very complicated and complex subject. In the winter of 2006, I was asked by Kofi Annan to serve as his special representative for migration, and we had a summit meeting on migration in September of that year in New York. And we wondered whether people would show up. A number of countries opposed it in principle. The most vociferous and firm in its opposition was the United States, which it has remained to this day. And its opposition was based primarily on a concept of national sovereignty and a belief that any discussion on issues of migration, even if linked expressly with development, entered into a realm of interference with national sovereignty in regard to the way that migrants are being treated in host countries. And we set up at that meeting in New York a global conference on migration and development. This year's meeting, which took place in the Philippines recently, had 164 countries there. But it could only be conducted effectively by avoiding the finger-pointing exercise that is often surrounding the debate on rights and pointing to conventions. The conventions on human rights of migrants, which one would wish to be adopted, are not, however, a suitable, whether one likes it or not, subject matter for a discussion in multilateral fora, because it ends up in a dialogue of the deaf. What is being discussed at these global forums on migration and development is basically how we can maximize the relationship between migrant communities and their home communities. Worldwide, $265 billion flowed to developing countries through remittances in 2007. That surpassed official global development aid by 60%, according to the latest World Bank figures. If unrecorded remittances were included, the sum would be much, much higher. 
So remittances to developing countries are expected to peak at around 283 billion in 2008 before falling in 2009 due to the economic crisis. The story at country level can look even more dramatic. Remittance receipts in Moldova and Tajikistan exceeded one-third of their GDP. The Philippines, Honduras, Guyana, Jordan and Lebanon each generate the equivalent of more than one-fifth of their total GDP from remittances. Meanwhile, India, China, Mexico each benefit from over 25 billion annually in official, official remittance receipts. In all these places, this income is vital in terms of direct poverty reduction. And in some cases, it's becoming a major policy plank and pillar of development strategy. So remittances, however regrettable they are in signaling the suffering that often goes with migration, are an important part of international cooperation in the realm of migration. Just a few years ago, the fees charged to migrants by financial institutions for sending money home averaged more than 10%, exceeding 15 and even 20% in many cases, thereby taking tens of billions of dollars every year out of the hands of the poor. Now these have fallen by more than half as countries have worked together to remove regulatory barriers that kept fees high. And the reduction in fees has been a headline success story, but there's a great deal of room for improvement. Many countries and private sector institutions, meanwhile, are exploring how the practice of sending and receiving remittances can be leveraged to bring banking services to the unbanked. And remittances are mostly used to support daily consumption needs, so they're vital for the poor. Other innovative tools, tools target the diaspora members sending remittances, special foreign currency deposit accounts with preferential interest rates, for an example, and facilities for direct investment are two successful ideas. Meanwhile, at national level, states have been experimenting with using remittance flows to develop financial tools for things like diaspora bonds. So there are great things happening in terms of linking the diaspora with home. Wealthy migrants and their heirs also have advantages. They have access not only to their own capital, but more easily able to borrow funds from banks, leverage their own investments and venture capital funds, and use their own success to persuade others to join them as investment partners. And networks of diaspora entrepreneurs are helping to expand the reach of individual investors. One prominent example is TIE, the Indus Entrepreneurs, a group founded in Silicon Valley in 1992 by successful entrepreneurs and professionals with roots in the Indus region, and which is today the largest not-for-profit uh, for entrepreneurs. And this includes over 52 chapters in 11 countries, 12,000 members, including many top entrepreneurs, VCs, partners, and technology professionals. And they've set up major activities in their home base as a result. Another similar effort is Chile Global, an international network of successful Chilean business owners, executives, and others living abroad who work together to contribute to Chile's economic development. 
Several years ago, the Mexican government appealed to migrants to fund infrastructure projects in their regions of origin by sending remittances through collective institutions called hometown associations, which bring people together based on a common place of origin in the home country. Similar diaspora groups also form on the basis of common ethnicity, religion or religious institution. There are vehicles of choice for development cooperation between migrant communities and governments in El Salvador, Ghana, Mali, Mexico and the Philippines, just to name a few. In Morocco, rural electrification cooperatives financed by Moroccan immigrants to France have supported the industrial development of an entire region. Destination country governments are also exp expanding and experimenting with matching fund programs. In Norway, they have a project called Pilot Project Pakistan. This matches diaspora contributions to development projects with equivalent sums from official development assistance. USAID has a similar diaspora fund for developments in Haiti, and France augments programs to Mali with ODA funds. Businesses are also beginning to take part in programs. Western Union recently transformed Mexico's three-for-one program into a four-for-one initiative by adding a fourth matching dollar for selective projects focused on job creation. The publicity generated by our growing understanding of remittances over the last decade has had a very broad and good effect on the attention paid by governments to their diasporas. India has established a Ministry for Overseas Indian Affairs. Serbia, Syria, Haiti and Armenia have also created similar dedicated ministries. Some countries opted for more innovative institutional structures. Instead of creating a separate diaspora ministry, they combined diaspora with other sectors, such as labor, tourism, and foreign affairs. And Mali and other countries in Africa have had a very significant degree of success with relatively small initiatives of this kind. Governments are also expanding diplomatic presence around the world, specifically to deal with their own diasporas. So, there is an explosion of interest in migration and development, and it is changing the discourse among states. In yesterday's communique from the EU-Africa summit in Paris, it devotes two full pages to promoting development with solidarity by strengthening links between diasporas, countries of origin, and destination countries. Another long section focuses on promoting migrant remittances and their use for development purposes. More importantly, implicit throughout yesterday's summit and the resulting communique is that there are goals that must be pursued by countries of origin and destination in tandem and must be largely financed by the latter, the countries of destination. And there is a shift of tone and substance, which is captured in a policy that Brussels has called the global approach to migration. But it would be foolish to think that this new perspective will eliminate all the pathologies that our societies harbor around migration. There will always be racism. Demagogues will, all, demagogues will always build walls to keep the other out. And each time they build a 50-foot wall, innovation 
will defeat it with a 51-foot ladder. So those who build walls are not going to succeed. So if in these times of crisis, focusing on migration and development can help to keep a steady keel in the realm of international relations, what can serve a similar role on the home front? Well, at the, on the home front, we have real issues in regard to integration. Investments in the integration of immigrants, especially at a time when national tills are being emptied by bailouts and falling tax revenues, will not be popular. But they're more essential than ever. And in making these investments, we can't allow ourselves to be distracted by ideological debates that are essentially red herrings. In recent years, in much of the West, concern about immigration has crystallized around the question of whether multicultural policies have failed. Those who would like to bury such policies argue that we have sacrificed national identity and social cohesion at the altar of cultural correctness. Instead, they say we should promote policies that favor assimilation. So in much of Europe, as well as in Canada and Australia, where multicultural policies were born, the tide has shifted. Instead of a multicultural ethic of asking what we can do for immigrants, we're now beginning to ask what newcomers have to do to fit in with the societies which they are joining. Integration courses and even exams for residency and citizenship often with disturbingly subjective elements that test for values and character are proliferating throughout Europe. In France, under Mr. Sarkozy, there is now a Ministry of National Identity. The urge to recognize and parade national identity is due, I believe, to the pressures of globalization and the threat of terrorism. And muscular monoculturalism has become a mainstream ideology. Integration is mostly discussed now as a burden that immigrants are meant to bear. They must learn the language, adopt to our traditions, respect our laws. There is, of course, of course truth to this, but allow me to offer you a different way to think about the issue. Integration should be about enabling those people who come to our country to become who they want to be through education, through work, and through full participation in our political and social institutions. This is the essence of our contemporary liberal democracies. They allow individuals to fully realize their potential. And our openness is also at the heart of our ability to compete in the 21st century. If we are recognized as a liberal society in which people can realize their ambitions, then we will stand apart from most of the world and attract the best and the brightest. If we think about integration in this light, then the burden of responsibility becomes more even evenly distributed. Of course, immigrants have to make real efforts, as almost all do, to work hard and respect our laws. But we too must change as individuals and as a society. We have to ensure that the playing field is level that access to our schools, to public services, to employment, and to political representation are fair and equal for all members of our community. And this demands, I think, that we rethink our institutions as well as our attitudes 
about what it means to be British or French or German or Dutch, we have to recognize that the fundamental principle is the dignity of the human person. And that essential characteristic applies to everybody, however they describe themselves in terms of nationality. And if we want to establish a litmus test for whether we are succeeding or failing in integrating immigrants, it could be this. Will a young boy or girl born in London today to an immigrant from Poland or China or Ghana have an equal chance as a native son or daughter to become prime minister or a professor at the LSE? This is the standard we must set and we must meet. And however critical one may be, and I have been, about the US's view on multilateralism and immigration, one has to, pay to give credit to the election of President Obama and what that signifies in the United States. But if we can accomplish this, I'm confident that social cohesion will grow. Recently, one of the most enlightened American voices on immigration, um, Archbishop of Brooklyn, uh, Nicholas DiMarzio, shared uh, these wide, wise words. He said, immigrants integrate only from a position of strength. When they are affirmed and accepted, when they're welcomed, then they understand their responsibility to become part and parcel of a culture of a culture which is open to them. And the converse is equally true. In thinking about our future, we need to know what is not attainable. Cultural homogeneity is no longer possible. We shouldn't be tilting at that windmill. This is not because of immigration alone, or even primarily, but because of the revolutions in communications, transportation and commerce. Nor does it mean that our culture will weaken. In fact, the internet and globalization are tools that strengthen and spread cultures. Furthermore, I'm not suggesting that immigration should be permitted to undermine values or rights as understood in the host country. They can, can and should be defended, but only to the limits of their legitimacy. But it does not mean that in our local communities we cannot expect any longer to live in splendid cultural isolation. It does mean that we cannot live in splendid cultural isolation. The philosopher, philosopher Anthony Apaya has made these uh, reassuring words uh, on this subject. Cultures are made of continuities and changes and the identity of a society can survive through those changes. Societies without change aren't authentic, they're just dead. As we go forward, I think we have to rebalance multiculturalism with vigorous policies that draw all residents of our communities, newcomers and old-timers alike, into society. The parts of multicultural policy that we should protect are those that allow and encourage all citizens to express their cultural and religious, religious identities as equals. If I were to leave you with only one unifying thought on integration, it would be this. In thinking about our future, we should pour our energy into creating shared experiences. Simply put, we cannot expect people to integrate into our societies if we're all strangers to one another. We have a breakdown in the institutions that once brought citizens in the West together. Church attendances have plummeted. Labor union roles have dwindled. 
Military conscription no longer exists, thank God. Our media have fragmented to the point where we inhabit our own individual media worlds, symbolized by the sight of people walking down streets, imprisoned in their iPods. One neighbor watches Al Jazeera, the other Fox, and they develop two very different, often dueling views of the world. New technologies might unite people globally, but they risk dividing us as individuals. The ethnic polarization of schools throughout much of Europe is dramatic. Where once school populations more or less represented the communities around them, now they tend, tend to be polarized. Why should we care? The evidence shows us that, the, that greater segregation leads to lower employment, lower earnings, lower education participation. Different schools for different groups usually lead to indifferent quality. And so those who go to lesser schools have their prospects defined not by their own ambitions or skills, but by their ethnicity. Studies have also shown that when children don't mix at elementary level, it becomes much more difficult for them to make friendships across racial divides as they get older. The resulting tribalization is deadly for our societies. So when thinking about creating shared experiences, we must start by looking at our schools, at their makeup, at their quality, and at their curriculum. All of these dimensions must be suited to a diverse society. We have schools in which minorities make up the majority of students. In parts of Berlin, minority representation exceeds 80% of the total student force. In all of Germany, meanwhile, an astonishing 38% of all zero to six-year-olds are children of immigrants. Solving this might be the most vexing riddle we face since it is tied to segregation in housing and to economic inequality, which, as we know from the recent OECD report, is widening, not reducing. There are four parts of the school experience which we can shape more easily. Early schooling, curriculum that reflects diversity, we, should, we need to make sure that the curriculum, especially in social studies, reflects the diversity of our societies. Unless everyone has the same level of understanding about everyone else's lives, we will not be able to get along. And as the head of the UK Equality and Human Rights Commission, Trevor Phillips, once mem memorably noted, merely attending cultural festivals is not multiculturalism. It's domestic tourism. Civics. We need to reapproach how we teach civics. We can't approach this task passively. Discrimination. Finally, we must eliminate any and all forms of bias in the entry to higher education. Throughout much of the West, ethnic minorities are underrepresented, and this underrepresentation is not the result of ability. In France, active recruitment in minority neighborhoods and less culturally biased application procedures, procedures have made a remarkable difference in driving up minority enrollment at elite universities. And we're trying here in this university to play our part also. But while schooling is the sine qua non of creating a cohesive society, politics is equally important. 
It's through politics that a society's laws, norms, and traditions evolve. Unless newcomers are drawn with relative speed into the political arena, our norms and traditions will not evolve to reflect today's society. Newcomers will feel increasingly alienated. Already nine EU countries offer the vote in local elections to non-citizens. There are also more immediate ways as well to bring immigrants into the political process. Political parties, for an, for an example, could actively seek members in ethnic neighborhoods. But this will be difficult. In Toronto, where almost half the population is foreign born, only three of 44 councillors belong to an ethnic minority. Political incorporation will take a conscious effort on the part of immigrants as well. They'll have to make a proactive choice to become Irish or Italian or French. The third pillar is job market. There's nothing more subversive to a person's self-worth, sense of self-worth, than long-term unemployment. Having too many newcomers on social security is one of the main drivers of anti-immigrant sentiment also on the other side of the equation. And outside of school, the workplace is where social relationships across racial, religious and ethnic boundaries are most likely to be formed. We have to strive to ensure that once we decide to welcome newcomers on a permanent basis, we give them not merely jobs but also a path to citizenship. National identity, therefore, has to become a dynamic process for which we should set the rules of the game by which norms evolve, rather than trying to establish fixed values, saying that we are what we are and nobody else can share that in a, in a, in a society. Eratosthenes of Cyrene composed in his old age a philosophical treatise in which only a, fro a few fragments remain. In closing, I'd like to share one that is particularly relevant. He said, the author rejects the principle of a twofold division of the human race between Greeks and barbarians and disapproves of the advice given to Alexander that he treat all Greeks as friends and all barbarians as enemies. It's better, he writes, to employ as a division criteria the qualities of virtue and dishonesty Many Greeks are dishonest and many barbarians enjoy a refined civilization. That is the way that we should look at people as they are rather than as nationalities. Thank you very much indeed. Well, before this lecture started, uh, Peter Sutherland said to me that, well, you know, realize I'm not an academic. There are lots of technical details about the migration debate I, I don't fully follow, and there may be questions about method that are not probably best addressed to me. And yet I've heard a, a deeply impressive, commanding, and also deeply humanistic lecture, for which I'd like to thank you very much indeed. We have uh, plenty of time for questions. I'd like to take them in clusters of four or five to give the, you, the audience, plenty of opportunity to, to pursue the topics raised. Just to remind you, we just want to focus on the lecture and the text of the lecture rather than any other questions you might have burning tonight. So, where are the mics? Yeah? Let's, uh, mic up there. Gentleman with his hands up in the middle. Yeah. 
just up here. Thank you very much for your lecture. The question I have is, when we talk about uh, migration and development and the brain circulation of uh, people who go abroad and then go back to their developing countries and have an added value for their home countries. And then on the other hand, we talk about integration of these people into the new societies and having right to vote and become full citizens. How do we uh, merge these two policies into one another? Maybe some of these people don't want to become part of the new society. Maybe they want to gain something and then go back or have circular migration. Thank you. Yeah, gentleman down here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is about something uh, to do with the uh, current political situation. You heard the uh, mayor last week, sorry, this week, stating that uh, uh, about migration, uh, should there be a some sort of uh, amnesty? I would like your opinion uh, on that matter, for or against, because at the end of the day, if you are for it, then there are certain challenges with that. And if you are against it, there's also certain challenges, especially with the economical conditions that we have at the present moment. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Lady at the back, yeah. Um, just, I wonder when people cease to be... Um, can you can you put the mic closer to your mouth? Just, just need to speak into it. It's on, but... Uh, when do immigrants cease to be immigrants? Uh, because you said that you should have active integration policies. Um, how many generations of immigrants should benefit these policies, and when do we reach full integration? Thank you. Yeah, G yeah. gentleman up there with his hand up. question. Thank you. That's five questions. I'll come back to you just at the next cluster. Should we start with those five? I should have said the only questions I'm prepared to accept are stupid questions. And uh, I actually much prefer stupid questions, and unfortunately all of these are horrific. Um, let, let, let me start with the first one, which is, you know, the clear contradiction, ostensible contradiction between a policy which, on the one hand, welcomes and brings people from often from developing and least developed countries into a society and in an ideal world welcomes them so they don't go home and they have the skill set then which is needed in their home country. This is the old part of this, is obviously the old brain drain issue. Well, I think I start on this uh, from the proposition that I believe, without being too philosophical about it, in the dignity of the human person. 
And I start with the human person who wants to leave and move from one society to another. We condemned for decades, rightly, the Soviet Union for not allowing its people to leave. As soon as people are allowed to leave, we start saying, yes, they have to be allowed to leave, but we don't have to allow them in. And this contradiction in terms is my starting point, the individual person's right to move. Now, we have to be realistic that that individual person's right to move ultimately can have effects which cannot be contained in the societies into which they go. I remember spending time in Calcutta last year and seeing the huge numbers of uh, Benga uh, Bangladesh uh, migrants living in areas of great squalor uh, outside Calcutta and even allowing for the disparity of, of capacity there and the inability to spend great sums of money. I spoke to a politician in the area and complained about the fact that areas which I was concerned with had no water, uh, heating, electricity, even the most basic sanitation. And the answer I got from a very humane man was, yes, but if we, if we had all of those things, all we would get is another half a million uh, people coming over the border as migrants. So this is a, there's no answer to the question that you ask, only to make the most we can out of what we've got and to try to accommodate as best we can the basic, to my mind, the basic human right of people within bounds of practicality to move. And I think in the end of the day, we have, to allow the, we have to allow the opportunities at home and the sense of obligation to home to uh, benefit from that migration. And I've already proved with the figures I gave on, remit on uh, remittances that they, most people who go to foreign countries have an enormous interest in their home country. It's not that they don't. And if they get the opportunity to go back, they will. And many of them are starting businesses at home. And that's what we have to facilitate. It's the best we can do. Should there be an amnesty? Um, this is a very, very difficult subject. And therefore, that's the beginning of my answer to avoid answering it, of course. But it is a very difficult subject. And the most obvious example where this has been debated in Europe was in respect of the Spanish amnesty which I think covered about 700,000 people as far as I can recall, and it brought enormous mm. objection from the other EU member states. And the reason for that is that the EU itself allows free movement of people as a basic right. And therefore, if an amnesty is granted in one part of Europe, which can have, could have the effect, however unlikely it might be, that people given an amnesty here, for an example, would move to some other European country. The linguistic attractions of, of England are fantastic because speaking English obviously makes it a mecca for many people who are coming from other parts of the world. I, don't, I, don't th I think in principle we have to be very careful about, and I speak this as a, a liberal, about amnesties. I think it can have reverse effects which can be quite serious in terms of not knowing what the impact in terms of your own relations within the European Union may be. It may inhibit others rather than the opposite, and it can be the fuel for more demagogic and essentially racist responses to migration than a more coherent or more, but more personalized approach to dealing with migrants. But that's a personal view. It, it will be immediately accused of being an incitement for 
a huge influx which will cause anti-immigrant feeling in terms of people who come in in the future. Um, when do immigrants cease to be immigrants? Well, what I was really trying to say at the outset is that this comes back to my issue about national identities. Now, I cry with joy when England is being stuffed on a rugby field by Ireland. I must admit it. So I have the same feeling of nationalism uh, as anybody else. But I don't admire it. I don't admire the sense which you get, if I may say so, from reading many of the tabloid newspapers here, that when they talk about a Frenchman or a Spaniard or an Irishman or Asian or an African, they stereotype them. There's a, there's a fixed image of nationalities, and that is racism. So they, it's a simple answer to your question. Immigrants cease to be immigrants when we all grow up and recognize people to be people and not to define them by their color of their skin or their religion. Um, second class tier, unfortunately, that again is what we're trying to avoid. Let's go again. Yes, I promised you up there. Your hands up, lady up there. With the Where's the mics? Can you pass it down? And then it's number two, yeah? Just hang on one second. Yeah. yeah. You're just going to be passed another microphone. It's just coming. Maybe we should put that one out of action. Hi. Um, my question is. Uh if you can address the problem of integrating immigrants spatially into the cities. Well, should we take a few more? Yep, yeah, well, sorry. Yeah, sure. Okay, number one, yeah, spatial okay. integration. Okay. okay. Two, yeah, over there. Thanks. Yeah, my question is relating to national identity and what kind of problems that might be for language barriers that immigrants might face and what kind of perspective do you have on that? What was that? Sorry. Can you uh, the language it? barrier that immigrants might face. Oh, yeah. Maiko, yeah. Mike over there. No, up, back behind. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your lecture, Peter. Um, given your involvement in these international fora um, for coordination on migration, um, when one looks at the international organization landscape of the UN, one finds one kind of immediate obvious gap. There's an organization for trade, there's an organization for refugees, there's no UN organization for migrants. Um, and given your experience in this, this arena, what are the prospects for such an organization being established? Okay, thank you. Oh. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your lecture and acknowledging a lot of the positive contributions of migrants. Um, I do have a question. You spoke a lot about development and migrant remittances. And I have some concerns myself about migrant remittances. Um, we all know there's a lot of inequalities in the world, and you know there's a lot of development which needs to be done around the world. And sometimes I worry that all of this excitement about remittances means that it's really placing the burden of the inequalities in development on migrants, who are oftentimes, you know, working long hours and not earning a lot of money, and sort of placing the burden on them as opposed to with international organizations. I'd just like you to comment on that. Clear. Can you just pass the mic in front of you? Yes, the lady over there. Um, 
I just wanted to ask, I mean, I appreciated the outline of all the benefits of, uh, or the links between migration and development, but the interministerial meeting you went to a couple of, uh, yesterday, I think you said, um, I wondered if that was development ministers or uh, home affairs ministers as well, and how they considered addressing the issue of policy coherence, national policy coherence, around achieving the development gains. Peter, that's, that's five okay. questions. We will come back. We will come back in a moment. Can I just throw in one question yeah. of my own? But we, we will come back. We've got time for several more clusters. But I just want to ask you a particular uh, uh, question, to do, and the topic is sort of temporary migration. There's a clear tension, as we all know, between the pressures for migration on the one side and many governments' w uh, willingness or capacity to act as hosts. How far do you think a system, perhaps institutionally regulated at the UN level, that permits temporary migration, perhaps on a visa system of three to five years in the first instance, might help bridge this gap? And these proposals have been made for some time, for example, by Danny Roderick at the yeah. Kennedy School at Harvard, but many others as well. And I just wonder whether you think there's some mileage in this or whether the unintended consequences of it would be to reinforce the sense that migrants are second-class citizens and create further traps down the line. So I'm sorry, audience, for guess, squeezing that in, but I will come back to you in just a moment. Well, um, spatial integration. We believe in freedom. It's inevitable that people will cluster, I think, in societies into which they go. The danger of ghettoization is a very real one, but it's a fact and we have to deal, we have to live with it. We cannot have busing of people from one place to another and in many ways it's assisted in the integration in some societies over the, over the, in the past. For an example in the United States, in any of the major cities there are areas which were associated, God help them, with the Irish or with the uh, Italians or with whatever and ultimately actually can be used as an integration mechanism because of the security and support that those families and societies give for themselves. But I think that there's a big obligation on migrant communities to become more active in integrating themselves. I've been talking about all the obligations imposed on the host countries but there are immigrant societies uh, there are immigrant groups who for one reason or another are not seen to make the necessary effort in integration. And this, I think, can sometimes be attributed to uh, religious groupings in our society. It is sometimes said, it must be said, of the Islamic community. And uh, I've talked to people in schools who have seen groups within the schools setting themselves apart in Absolutely. one way or another and not integrating. Now we have to have enough courage to debate that and discuss that openly and, and to say that this is not acceptable. It's acceptable to maintain your separate cultural identity, be, to be proud of it, but not to become in some way isolated from the community of which you want to be part. So we have to frankly talk about that. So I'm not against, I'm not for spatial integration if it means forcing people to live away from others, but I am, a, the language barrier is obviously a clear, a clear problem. And obviously within those spatial settings and elsewhere people are going to talk and continue talking in their own language. But normally in the second generation that will have gone. Normally the school system will create, and sometimes some sort of barriers even between parents, parents and children, because the children are insisting on speaking the language of the society in which they've, into which they've come. My wife is Spanish. She always spoke to our children in Spanish. Very early on, they saw this as something which distinguished themselves, them from others, and they insisted on speaking to her in English. 
even though we were all furious about this because we thought this is a great possibility of teaching Spanish. Now, ultimately, it came right. But there is that drive to be part of the society which you're in. An inter a UN organization, I don't think there is going to be a UN organization simply because people, the Homeland Security, the Justice Departments, the Home Affairs Departments, who often view this issue as an issue of rights within domestic societies or walls at borders, simply don't want other people in multilateral organizations getting involved in this issue which they say is key to national security. So I think there will be a great reluctance to set up a new organization. And that's really why we started this conference on, uh, that I talked about on migration and development, but because by linking the two issues, migration and development, it became less threatening to national bureaucracies. And we were able to talk about the subject in a different context. And in answer to another question there, one of the advantages of this was that we insisted that every country nominate one individual, a senior civil servant, as what we described a focal point. And the focal point in each country had to bring together all, the, all of the ministries. So it didn't become a dialogue between ministries of home affairs or border control and be involved development and everything else. And the argument about remittances removing uh, or being sorry because people, often the poorest people send remittances, absolutely true. But people want to send the remittances. And the reality is that ODA, looking at the performance of reaching the 0.7 of 1% figure in the Millennium Goals, the non-performance, you're not going to get ODA, which is going to supplant the remittances. So of course we can feel that it is tragic that people who are often living on virtually the minimum, bare minimum, are the very people who are sending remittances. And it would be much better if we had other people, governments in particular, who are multilateral organizations who did it. That's not going to happen. With regard to temporary migrants, I think the idea of temporary migration, which is being examined more and more, particularly in the EU context, is a good idea. But it has to be, it's part of a dialogue to create more regular and less irregular migration. But part of that equation is that you have to get more regular migration. And that can perhaps be assisted, and I don't think it's going to create great problems. There are areas in Europe, for an example, where there is a seasonal demand for a great deal of work. It would be much better that that seasonal demand was answered by regular migrants whose rights are protected because their identity is known, even though they come in, stay for four or five months and go home, than to have large influx of irregular migrants whose rights aren't even, whose identities aren't even known about and therefore their rights can't be protected. Thank you. So we'll go back. Yes. Um, let's have a mic over there. Um, what do you expect in uh, practical terms from the new uh, elected, newly elected U.S. president in terms of migration policies? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Gentleman down here. This group might be enough. Just five. So, Peter, you mentioned in your speech about students and the kind of premium that's placed on them in the migration debates. 
And you only have to look at the examples of Australia, Canada, and now Britain, who have placed, who have introduced points-based immigration systems, particularly Britain, um, for any immigrants coming outside the EU. My question is, in association with that, a lot of the countries and a lot of the countries in the developed world have developed world have now started to also ban unskilled labour. Do you think this is heralding the end of social mobility as a phenomenon of migration? Yeah, number three. Um, good evening. Yeah. Um, my question is about uh, race and stereotype, which you mentioned earlier. After 9-11, there's this email that's been going out that all um, Muslims are not terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. And in this regard, there's this question about national security against racism when it comes to migration. So could you uh, outline where the line comes between this national security and between racism in this regard? Thank you. <clears throat> See, immigration is also a very creative process, it, not only for the immigrants themselves, but also to the recipient societies. And I think this bit is somewhat underplayed. Um, and we look at the immigration as a question only of the, of the, of the equality. Uh, so that's just my level, that I think we need to look at this as uh, the creativity of this process also should be highlighted. I mean, it's also good for world peace, I should think. Anyway, my question would be this. Uh, you pointed out that the uh, prison crisis might, uh, well, exacerbate the, uh, the uh, problem of, uh, uh, of immigrants and immigration. Uh, what advice do you have for the European governments uh, and uh, uh, governments of other developed countries in this, uh, in this, in this uh, context? Thank you. Yes, which uh, advice, which advice to whom? Which advice do you have to whom? We didn't which, catch the which last... Con which context are you talking about? What, sorry, I didn't catch the... The, the, the crisis that we are facing, yeah. uh, it might exacerbate the, uh, uh, the uh, problems with the, yeah. of immigration and immigrants. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have to the uh, governments of the Europe and the uh, other developed countries in coping up with this problem? Yeah, Thank Mike you. over here, please, just there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to go back to the, your question, uh, your answer about the unlikelihood of a UN system or UN organization for migration. And to what extent do you think regional processes, regional dialogues uh, are able to fill this, uh, this gap and to promote better understanding and cooperation? Yeah, yeah, thank states? you. Good point. And once, let me squeeze in one last question. I'm afraid this will have to be the last one. Here, down, don't go away. Gentle, just here, lady in the front. Thank you. Good evening. Um, I'd like to ask you how you think that uh, governments should try to um, convey the message that migration is not necessarily economically damaging to their own populations. Thank you. This, poor, this man here, there's a man here who's had his hand up quite a long time. All right, we'll this take better the, be an yes. easy question after okay. all this. Yes. <laughs> Cheers. Um, I just, you mentioned that you went to the Rabat 2 conference yesterday as a UN representative, and I just wondered if you could explain more about what, how the UN works within the EU, works with the EU on migration, please. Yeah. I think we need to say that tonight. Okay, that's fine. That's only eight. Yeah. All right. Um, US President. Well, well first of all, um, it has to be said that uh, George Bush, whatever false may be widely attributed to him, rightly or wrongly, was not uh, on the issue of migration a closed mind. 
but some members of his administration were not uh, similarly disposed. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Obama, I don't know what his position is going to be. Uh, I assume it's going to be a more open and flexible and multilateral approach than uh, it, and that it will be positive. But there have been elements in the U.S. electoral debate, for an example, uh, focusing to some extent on protectionism and so on, that give rise to worry, as they will everywhere else, at a time of economic dislocation. But I, the impression I get, and look at the history of Obama himself, it's hard to believe that he will be anything other than a constructive participant in debate on this particular issue, and that he won't try and lead his government accordingly. On students and the points-based system, I, I personally believe that the need and the view on people without education, as well as those who have skills that are necessary for the development of society, that there has to be a very much more equal approach in terms of dealing with this issue. I actually believe that even on the figures that I gave, the demographic figures and the requirements for economic prosperity, purely based on an empirical and pragmatic view as to self-interest, demand a much more constructive engagement with this issue than the people as a whole, and I think politicians respond to people, actually believe. The real problem here is that we haven't explained the facts because it's much easier to explain a policy that involves closing off borders, which you can't do anyway, even if you're an island. And that is really the issue here. There has to be a much more informed debate. And this is what all of this is about this evening, in a sense, trying to inform each other about a complex debate. There was a YouGov poll, I don't know what this was relevant to, some years ago, which always stuck in my mind about this issue of integration. And if I got the figures right, it was something like 80% or something were in favour of Australian immigrants. Then you went down to something like, I don't know, let's say 56% in favour of Polish immigrants. Then you came down to 39% who were in favour of Caribbean black immigrants from English-speaking peoples, people, uh, countries. And then you went down into the 20s for any, virtually any immigrant from a Muslim country. And then you ultimately ended up, I think it was, at 10% for, for Iraq, Iraqi immigrants. Now, this, is a very, this sort of thing is enlightening and disturbing. It's very disturbing. But it's also in terms of the question on terrorism, Islam, and so on, it's something which we have to contest by more integration, by the Islamic community, as well as by those of us who argue strongly against it. All you have to do is to look back over the history of the last war and what happened, for an example, on the west coast of the United States in regard to Japanese by then long indigenous peoples being sent to prison camps and so on and the way that Germans living for long periods of time in this country were treated and elsewhere. This is a problem that can only be addressed by combined effort of both the immigrant community and the established community and I, I know that that's all platitudinous stuff but there's nothing more that one can say about it to my mind than that. Stereotypes, therefore, are part of our problem. 
and uh, the, the but I think on the other hand I must say that to me at least and maybe I'm living in a rarefied atmosphere London is a pretty multicultural place I think you'd find in smaller communities a much more difficult situation than you would here because if you walk down a street at least in central London the likelihood that you're going to hear somebody speaking with a, a cockney accent uh, is pretty remote so this is a pretty good place to be in terms of multicultural society with all its problems I think that there are much worse in other parts uh, in other parts regional dialogues I think regional dialogues are great but they're not everything I mean the second or third highest migrant population in Ireland I think I'm right in saying are Chinese and this all happened within within 10 years um, and something like 13 percent of the total population now are, are immigrants so it is a global it's a global issue that can be partially dealt with by the conference which was a follow-up to one in Lisbon and one in Rabat and one in Tripoli which was between Europe and Africa where all sorts of movements are taking place and all sorts of ideas are being put out from training in Mali for an example by governments and so on of Europe who, who want migrants to come well trained to talking about uh, setting up hospitals in countries of origin where people who have become permanent and legitimate migrants in say Belgium who are entitled to health treatment in their old age can be provided at the cost of Belgium in their home country because it's a lower cost and it's better as far as they're concerned to go home with the treatment which they're entitled to under their social security code so there are lots of things happening like this how should governments convey this issue well governments the difficulty is that governments as I said respond to the attraction of and there is an attraction of them and us the them and us world and that's why you get all of this stereotyping as I've said in, in, in tabloids because people want to read that they want to actually and they actually do believe it they believe that he's or she's a, an ex so therefore this is the way they think and this is the way they behave and God knows what they do in their house I mean this is, a, this is the way it is and it, we can only stop it by dialogue UN with the EU I was, I was only an observer really at this, this was purely an EU uh, um, uh, Africa, Africa summit the EU and the UN communicate quite a lot but one is a supranational entity that makes laws that apply to the whole EU and has and increasingly tries to have a migration policy for the whole of the European Union it has to have it because otherwise free movement within the countries of Europe would be prejudiced so it's totally different and uh, the UN I think really is more concerned with global dialogue than legal frameworks uh, it has legal frameworks but most of them unfortunately are not being ratified so it remains for me to do two things to thank the migration studies unit for organizing this event and for thanking of course Peter Sutherland for more than fulfilling our expectations I think it was a superb lecture on a pressing matter from a very open mind drawing on a huge experience and we thank you for it thank you.